Part two of Chapter twenty one of Mr. Prohack by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two of Chapter twenty one. Three. He was considerably dashed on his return home to find the door of his study still locked on the outside. The gesture which on his leaving the room seemed so natural, brilliant, and excusable now presented itself to him as the act of a coarse-minded idiot. He hesitated to unlock the door, but of course he had to unlock it. Eve sat as if at the stake, sublime. "'Arthur, why do you play these tricks on me, and especially when we are in such trouble?' "'Why did he, indeed?' "'I merely didn't want you to run after me,' said he. "'I made sure, of course, that you'd ring the bell at once and have the door opened.' "'Did you imagine for a moment that I would let any of the servants know that you'd locked me in a room? "'No, you couldn't have imagined that. "'I've too much respect for your reputation in this house to do such a thing, and you ought to know it.' "'My child,' said Mr. Crowhack, once again amazed at Eve's extraordinary gift for putting him in the wrong, and for making him still more wrong when he was wrong, "'this is the second time this morning that I've had to surrender to overwhelming force. "'Name your own terms of peace.' "'But let me tell you, in extenuation, that I've discovered your offspring. "'The fact is, I got her in one.' "'Where is she?' Eve asked, not eagerly, rather negligently, "'for she was now more distressed about her husband's behaviour than about Sissy. "'At Ozzy's, as soon as he had uttered the words, "'Mr. Prohack saw his wife's interest fly back from himself to their daughter. "'What's she doing at Ozzy's?' "'Well, she's living with him. They were married yesterday.' They thought they'd save you and me and themselves a lot of trouble. But look here, my child, it's not a tragedy. What's the matter with you? Eve's face was a mask of catastrophe. She did not cry. The affair went too deep for tears. I suppose I shall have to forgive Sissy some day. But I've never been so insulted in my life. Never. And never shall I forget it. And I've no doubt that you and Sissy treated it all as a great piece of fun. You would. The poor lady had gone as pale as ivory. Mr. Bragg was astonished. He even felt hurt that he had not seen the thing from Eve's point of view earlier. Emphatically, it did amount to an insult for Eve, to say naught of the immense desolating disappointment to her. And yet Sissy, princess among daughters, had not shown by a single inflection of her voice that she had any sympathy with her mother, or any genuine appreciation of what the secret marriage would mean to her. Youth was incredibly cruel, and age, too, in the shape of Mr. Prohack himself, had not been much less cruel. "'Something's happened about that necklace since you left,' said Eve, in a dull, even voice. "'Oh, what?' "'I don't know, but I saw Mr. Crude, the detective, drive up to the house at a great pace. Then Brule came and knocked here, and as I didn't care to have to tell him that the door was locked, I kept quiet, and he went away again.' Mr. Crewe went away, too. I saw him drive away. Mr. Prohack said nothing audible, but to himself he said, She actually choked off her curiosity about the necklace so as not to give me away. There could never have been another woman like her in the whole history of human self-control. She's prodigious. And then he wondered what could have happened in regard to the necklace. He foresaw more trouble there, and the splendour of the morning had faded an appalling silence descended upon the whole house. To escape from its sinister spell, Mr. Prohack departed and sought the seclusion of his secondary club, 
which he had not entered for a very long time. He dared not face the lively amenities of his principal club. He pretended, at the secondary club, that he had never ceased to frequent the place regularly, and to that end he put on a nonchalant air. But he was somewhat disconcerted to find, from the demeanour of his acquaintances there, that he possibly had not been missed to any appreciable extent. He decided that the club was a dreary haunt, and could not understand why he had never before perceived its dreariness. The members seemed to be scarcely alive, and in particular they seemed to have conspired together to behave and talk as though humanity consisted of only one sex, their own. Mr. Brahack, worried though he was by a too acute realisation of the fact that humanity did indeed consist of two sexes, despised the lot of them. And yet, simultaneously, the weaker part of him envied them, and he fully admitted, in the abstract, that something might convincingly be said in favour of monasteries. It was a most strange experience. After a desolating lunch of excellent dishes, perfect coffee which left a taste in his mouth, and a fine cigar, which he threw away before it was half finished, he abandoned the club and strolled in the direction of Manchester Square. But he lacked the courage to go into the noble mansion, and feebly and aimlessly proceeded northward until he arrived at Marylebone Road and saw the great historic crimson building of Madame Tussaud's waxworks. His mood was such that he actually, in a wild and melancholy caprice, paid money to enter this building, and inquired at once for the room known as the Chamber of Horrors. When he emerged, his gloom had reached the fantastic, hysteric, or giggling stage, and his conception of the all-embracingness of London was immensely enlarged. Uh, "'Miss Sissy and Mr. Morphy are with Mrs. Prohack, sir,' said Brule, in a quite ordinary tone, taking the hat and coat of his returned master in the hall of the noble mansion. Mr. Prohack started. "'Give me back my hat and coat,' said he. "'Tell your mistress that I may not be in for dinner.' And he fled. He could not have assisted at the terrible interview between Eve and the erring daughter, who had inveigled her own betrothed into a premature marriage. Sissy, at any rate, had pluck, and she must also have had an enormous moral domination over Ozzie to have succeeded in forcing him to join her in a tragic scene. What a honeymoon! To what a pass had society come! Mr. Prohack drove straight to the monument, and paid more money for the privilege of climbing it. He next visited the tower. The day seemed to consist of twenty-four thousand hours. He dined at the Trocadero restaurant, solitary at a table under the shadow of the bass fiddle of the orchestra, and finally he patronised masculine and cook's entertainment, and witnessed the dissipation of solid young women into air. He reached home, as it was humorously called, at ten-thirty. Uh, Mrs. Prohack has retired for the night, sir, said Brule who never permitted his employers merely to go to bed, and wishes not to be disturbed. "'Thank God,' breathed Mr. Prohack. Uh, "'Yes, sir,' said Brule, dutifully acquiescent. 4. The next morning Eve behaved to her husband exactly as if nothing untoward had happened. She kissed and was kissed. She exhibited sweetness without gaiety, and a general curiosity without interest. She said not a word concerning the visit of Sissy and Ozzie. She expressed the hope that Mr. Prohack had had a pleasant evening and slept well. Her anxiety to be agreeable to Mr. Prohack was touching. It was angelic. To the physical eye all was as usual. But Mr. Prohack was aware 
that in a single night she had built a high and unescalable wall between him and her, a wall which he could see through and which he could kiss through, but which departed him utterly from her. And yet what sin had he committed against her, save the peccadillo of locking her for an hour or two in a comfortable room? It was Sissy, not he, who had committed the sin. He wanted to point this out to Eve, but he appreciated the entire futility of doing so, and therefore refrained. About eleven o'clock Eve knocked at and opened his study door. "'May I come in, or am I disturbing you?' she asked brightly. "'Don't be a silly goose,' said Mr. Brohack, whose rising temper he hated angels, was droning his tackle. Smiling as though he had thrown her a compliment, Eve came in and shut the door. "'I've just received this,' she said. "'It came by messenger.' And she handed him a letter signed with the name of Crude, the private detective. The letter ran, "'Madam, I beg to inform you that I have just ascertained that the driver of taxi number 5437 has left at Scotland Yard a pearl necklace which he found in his vehicle. He states that he drove a lady and gentleman from your house to Waterloo Station on the evening of your reception, but can give no description of them. I mention the matter pro forma, but do not anticipate that it can interest you as the police authorities at New Scotland Yard declare the pearls to be false. Yours obediently.' P.S. I called upon you in order to communicate the above facts yesterday, but you were not at home. Mr. Brahack turned a little pale, and his voice trembled as he said, looking up from the letter, I, I wonder who the thief was. Anyhow, women are staggering. Here, some woman, I'm sure it was the woman and not the man, picks up a necklace from the floor of one of your drawing-rooms, well knowing it not to be her own, hides it, makes off with it, and then is careless enough to leave it in a taxi. Did you ever hear of such a thing? But that wasn't my necklace, Arthur, said Eve. Of course it was your necklace, said Mr. Brohack. Do you mean to tell me? Eve began, and it was a new Eve. Of course I do, said Mr. Brohack, who had now thoroughly subdued his temper with the determination to bring to a head that trouble about the necklace and end it for ever. He was continuing his remarks when the wall suddenly fell down with an unimaginable crash. Eve said nothing, but the soundless crash deafened Mr. Prohack. Nevertheless, the mere fact that Sissy's wedding lay behind and not before him helped him somewhat to keep his spirits and his nerve. "'I will never forgive you, Arthur,' said Eve, with the most solemn and terrible candour. She no longer played a part. She was her formidable self, utterly unmasked and savagely expressive, without any regard to consequences. Mr. Prohack saw that he was engaged in a mortal duel with the buttons off the deadly foil. "'Of course you won't,' said he, gathering himself heroically together, and superbly assuming a calm which he did not in the least feel. "'Of course you won't, because there is nothing to forgive. On the contrary, you owe me your thanks. I never deceived you. I never told you the pearls were genuine. Indeed, I beg you to remind you that I once told you positively that I would never buy you a pearl necklace. Don't you remember? You thought they were genuine, and you have had just as much pleasure out of them as if they had been genuine. You were always careless with your jewellery. Think how I should have suffered if I watched you every day being careless with a rope of genuine pearls. I should have had no peace of mind. I should have been obliged to reproach you, and as you can't bear to be reproached, you would have picked quarrels with me. Further, you have lost nothing in prestige, 
for the reason that all our friends and acquaintances have naturally assumed that the pearls were genuine because they were your pearls, and you were the wife of a rich man. A woman whose husband's financial position is not high and secure is bound to wear real pearls because people will assume that her pearls are false. But a woman like yourself can wear any pinchbeck pearls with impunity because people assume that her pearls are genuine. In your case there could be no advantage whatever in genuine pearls. To buy them would be equivalent to throwing money in the street. Now, as it is, I have saved money over the pearls, and therefore interest on money. I did buy you the very finest procurable imitation. And think, my child, how relieved you are now. Oh, yes, you are. Don't, so don't pretend the contrary. I can deceive you, but you can't deceive me. You have no grievance whatever. You've had many hours of innocent satisfaction in your false jewels, and nobody any the worse. Indeed, my surpassing wisdom in the choice of a necklace has saved you from all further worry about the loss of the necklace, because it simply doesn't matter either one way or the other. And I say I defy you to stand there and tell me to your face that you have any grievance at all. Mr. Pratt paused for a reply, and he got it. I will never forgive you as long as I live, said Eve. Let us say no more about it. What time is that awful lunch that you've arranged with that dreadful bishop man? What would you like me to wear, please? In an instant she had rebuilt the wall higher than ever. Mr. Brohack, always through the wall, took her in his arms and kissed her. But he might as well have kissed a woman in a trance. All that could be said was that Eve submitted to his embrace, and her attitude was another brilliant illustration of the fact that the most powerful oriental tyrants can be defied by their weakest slaves, provided that the weakest slaves know how to do it. "'You are splendid,' said Mr. Prohack, admiringly, conscious anew of his passion for her, and full of trust in the virtue of his passion to knock down the wall sooner or later. "'But you are a very naughty and ungrateful creature, and you must be punished. I will now proceed to punish you. We have much to do before the lunch. Go and get ready, and simply put on all the clothes that have cost the most money. They are the clothes fittest for your punishment.' Three-quarters of an hour later, when Mr. Prohack had telephoned and sent a confirmatory note by hand to his bank, Carthew drove them away southwards, and the car stopped in front of the establishment of a very celebrated firm of jewellers near Piccadilly. "'Come along,' said Mr. Prohack, descending to the pavement, and drew after him a moving marble statue, richly attired. They entered the glittering shop, and were immediately encountered by an expectant salesman, who had the gifts of wearing a frock-coat as though he had been born in it, and of reading the hearts of men. That salesman saw in a flash that big business was afoot. First of all, said Mr. Prohair, here is my card, so that we may know where we stand. The salesman read the card and was suitably impressed, but his conviction that big business was afoot seemed now to be a little shaken. May I venture to hope that the missing necklace has been found, sir? said the salesman smoothly. We've all been greatly interested in the newspaper story. That is beside the point, said Mr. Prohack. I've come simply to buy a pearl necklace. I beg pardon, sir, certainly. Will you have the goodness to step this way? They were next in a private room off the shop, and the sole items of furniture were three elegant chairs, a table with a glass top, and a colossal safe. Another salesman entered the room with bows, and keys were produced, and the two salesmen between them swung back the majestic dark-green doors of the safe. 
In another minute, various pearl necklaces were lying on the table. The spectacle would have dazzled a connoisseur in pearls, but Mr. Prohack was not a connoisseur. He was not even interested in pearls, and saw on the table naught but a monotonous array of pleasing gewgaws, to his eye differing one from another only in size. He was, however, actuated by a high moral purpose, which uplifted him and enabled him to listen with dignity to the technical eulogies given by the experts. Eve, of course, behaved with impeccable correctness, hiding the existence of the wall from everybody except Mr. Prohack, but forcing Mr. Prohack to behold the wall all the time. When he had reached a state of complete bewilderment regarding the respective merits of the necklaces, Mr. Prohack judged the moment ripe for proceeding to business. With his own hands he clasped a necklace round his wife's neck and demanded, "'What is the price of this one?' Uh, eight hundred and fifty pounds,' answered the principal expert, who seemed to recognise every necklace at sight, as a shepherd recognises every sheep in his flock. "'Do you think this would suit you, my dear?' asked Mr. Prohack. "'I think so,' replied Eve politely. "'Well, I'm not so sure,' said Mr. Prohack reflectively. "'What about this one?' And he picked up and tried upon Eve another and a larger necklace. Uh, "'That,' said the original expert, "'is uh, two thousand four hundred guineas.' "'Seems cheap,' said Mr. Prohack carelessly. "'But there's something about the gradation that I don't quite like. "'What about this one?' Eve opened her mouth as if about to speak, but she did not speak. The wall, which had trembled for a few seconds, regained its monumental solidity. Uh, five thousand guineas,' said the expert of the third necklace. Hm, commented Mr. Prohack, removing the gewgaw. Ah, not so bad. And yet, that necklace, the expert announced with a mien from which all deference had vanished, is one of the most perfect we have. The pearls have, if I may so express it, a homogeneity not often arrived at in any necklace. They are not very large, of course. Quite so, said Mr. Prohack, stopping him, selecting a fourth necklace. Uh, yes, the expert admitted, his deference returning. Uh, that one is undoubtedly superior. Uh, let me see, we, we have not yet exactly valued it, but I think we could put it in at uh, ten thousand guineas, uh, but perhaps pounds. I should have to consult one of the partners. It is scarcely, said Mr. Prohack, surveying the trinket judiciously on his wife's neck, scarcely the necklace of my dreams, not that I would say a word against it. Ah! And he pounced suddenly with an air of delighted surprise upon a fifth necklace, the queen of necklaces. "'My dear, try this one. Try this one. I didn't notice it before. Somehow it takes my fancy, and as I shall obviously see much more of your necklace than you will, I should like my taste to be consulted.' As he fastened the cat to the thing upon Eve's delicious nape, he could feel that she was trembling. He surveyed the dazzling string. She also surveyed it, fascinated, spellbound. Even Mr. Prowker began to perceive that the reputation and value of fine pearls might perhaps be not entirely unmerited in the world. Is sixteen thousand five hundred, said the expert. Pounds or guineas? Mr. Prohack blandly inquired. Uh, well, sir, shall we say pounds? I think I'll take it, said Mr. Prohack with undiminished blandness. No, my dear, don't take it off. Don't take it off. Arthur, Eve breathed, seeming to expire in a kind of agonised protest. "'May I have a few minutes' private conversation with my wife?' Mr. Prohack suggested. "'Could you leave us?' One expert glanced at the other awkwardly. 
Uh, pardon my lack of savoir-vivre, said Mr. Park Prohack. Of course you cannot possibly leave us alone with all these valuables. Never mind. We'll call again. The principal expert rose sublimely to the great height of the occasion. He had a courageous mind, and was moreover well acquainted with the fantastic folly of allowing customers to call again. Within his experience of some thirty years, he had not bet half a dozen exceptions to the rule that customers who called again, if ever they did call, called in a mood of hard and miserly sanity, which for the purposes of the jewellery business was sickeningly inferior to their original mood. Uh, "'Please, please, Mr. Prohack,' said he with grand deprecation, and departed out of the room with his fellow. No sooner had they gone than the wall sank. It did not tumble with a crash. It most gently subsided. "'Arthur!' Eve exclaimed with a curious uncertainty of voice. "'Are you mad?' "'Yes,' said Mr. Prohack. "'Well,' said she, "'if you think I shall walk about London with sixteen thousand five hundred pounds round my neck, you're mistaken.' "'But I insist. You were a martyr, and our marriage was ruined because I didn't give you real pearls. I intend you shall have real pearls.' "'But not these,' said Eve. "'It's too much. It's a fortune.' "'I'm aware of that,' Mr. Prohack agreed. "'But what is sixteen thousand five hundred pounds to me?' "'Truly I couldn't, darling,' Eve wheedled. "'I'm not your darling,' said Mr. Prohack. "'How can I be your darling when you're never going to forgive me? "'Look here, I'll let you choose another necklace, "'but only on the condition that you forgive all my alleged transgressions, "'past, present, and to come.' She kissed him. "'You can have the one at five thousand guineas,' said Mr. Prohack. "'Nothing less. That is my ultimatum. "'Put it on. Put it on quick, or I may change my mind.' He recalled the experts, who, when they heard the grave news, smiled bravely, and looked upon Eve as upon a woman whose like they might never see again. "'My wife will wear the necklace at once,' said Mr. Prohack. "'Pen and ink, please.' He wrote a cheque. "'My car is outside. Perhaps you will send someone up to my bank immediately and cash this. We'll wait. I've warned the bank. There'll be no delay. The case can be delivered at my house. You can make out the receipt and usual guarantee while we're waiting.' And so it occurred as he had ordained. "'Would you care for us to arrange for the insurance? We undertake to do it as cheaply as anybody,' the expert suggested later. Mr. Brohack was startled, for in his inexperience he had not thought of such complications. "'I was just going to suggest it,' he answered placidly. "'I feel quite queer,' said Eve, as she fingered the necklace in the car, when all formalities were accomplished and they had left the cave of Aladdin. "'And well you may, my child.' said Mr. Prohack. The interest on the price of that nexus would about pay the salary of a Member of Parliament, or even of a professional cricketer. And remember that whenever you wear the thing, you are in danger of being waylaid, brutally attacked, and robbed. "'I wish you wouldn't be silly,' Eve murmured. "'I do hope I shan't seem self-conscious at the lunch.' "'We haven't reached the lunch yet,' Mr. Prohack replied. "'We must go and buy a safe first. There's no safe worth twopence in the house, and a really safe safe is essential.' and I want it to be clearly understood that I shall keep the key of that safe. We aren't playing at necklaces now. Life is earnest. And when they had bought a safe and were once more in the car, he said, examining her impartially, After all, at a distance of four feet, it doesn't look nearly so grand as the one that's lying at Scotland Yard. I gave thirty pounds for that one. End of Part 2 of Chapter 21